best for God's help. Father in heaven, I find myself grateful in moments like this that not only you are um, you are entreatable through the new and living way that we have through Jesus, but that you are eager to answer the prayer of help from a needy preacher. Lord, we all stand in great need of your enabling power right now, Lord, to understand, to make connections, to see things in a, in a letter perhaps that is familiar to us, and yet to see some things perhaps we've never seen before. That's your work, Holy Spirit. And so we don't presume upon that. We ask for it. We pray that you would come now and uh, grant us the gift of illumination. Would you clear our minds of distraction? Would you help to rivet our attention on these first two verses in Paul's letter to Ephesus, Lord? Lord, you build your church with your word. And so we ask that you would do that great work now. Build your church for the glory of Jesus, for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, trusting that you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 1, our plan is to to launch out right away into an overview of this letter. Um, If you haven't done so, I will give you a moment to to find a Bible and to open to the New Testament letter to the Ephesians. It's found on page 976 in the Red Bibles. 976 in those Red Bibles. Our plan, Lord willing, is to spend the entire summer in the first half of this letter. If we take our cues from the preaching calendar, which is available in Fellowship Hall, I invite you to to take a preaching calendar and and have that and pray through that, pray for these sermons, pray for the preachers. But if we take our cues from the preaching calendar, we ought to be studying the doxology that's found in chapter 3, verses 20 to 21 on Labor Day weekend. So, we make our plans, the Lord orders our steps, but that's the plan. It's wise to plan. And what that will do is position us for the fall when we will take up the back half of this letter, chapters 4 and 5 and 6. So that means that all told, apart from an odd Sunday here or there, we will be studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians from now till around Thanksgiving. How's that sound? These six chapters will occupy us until Advent. Now, if we're going to log that many hours together, if we're going to make that sort of investment in a book, uh, it would seem appropriate to begin with some pleasantries, wouldn't it? Uh, By God's grace, we in Ephesians are going to get to know one another relatively well over the next six months. And so it seems that maybe some introductions are in order. So in that spirit... Um, Mount Free Church, this is Ephesians. In Ephesians, this is, this is Mount Free Church. Now, you know you're getting to know someone, not simply when you learn the essentials about them, like what's their name, what do they do, how old are they, where do they live. Those things help, no doubt. But you can know things about someone 
in a rather formal way and still know very little of what makes them tick. Isn't that right? So let's cut to the chase right now. Here's what makes Ephesians tick. The heartbeat of Ephesians is union with Christ, the most important doctrine you've never studied. The heartbeat of Ephesians is union with Christ, the most important doctrine you've never studied. Now, with that statement, I'm not seeking to insult you if you have studied this doctrine, uh, nor am I seeking to alienate you if you haven't. All we're saying with this big idea is the tendency of the human mind to totally assume, to, to take for granted what stands at the very center of this doctrine, namely prepositions. Remember what prepositions are, right? Oh, it's a preposition again, right? I found that teaching prepositions is far better caught than taught. When I was in sixth grade, Mrs. Nearing taught us 37 of them to the tune of Yankee Doodle Dandy. You ready? With on, for, after, at, by, in, against, instead of, near, between, through, over, up, according to, around, about, beyond, into, until, within, without, upon, from, above, across, along, toward, before, behind, below, beneath, beside, during, under. Dun, da, da, dun, 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 dun. I was not anticipating that, okay? Those are prepositions. Little words that we lean on constantly that call little attention to themselves because they are calling attention to something greater than themselves. Prepositions are the key to understanding the doctrine of union with Christ. To mix our metaphors just slightly, prepositions are the key to unlocking the heartbeat of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The heartbeat of Ephesians is union with Christ. It's the most important doctrine you've never studied. But once you begin to study it, I assure you, you'll never let go of it. You'll never stop. In the words of theologian Anthony Hokema, once you have your eyes open to this concept of union with Christ, you'll find it almost everywhere in the New Testament, which is true with Paul and John. They're the ones who mainly give us this teaching, and they wrote most of the New Testament. But until you reach that point, you'll miss it. It'll be the most important doctrine you never, ever think about. I mean, how often do you think about your heartbeat? Let's say your resting heart rate is 75 beats per minute. If that's true, then your heart beats about 100,000 times a day. And yet you might think about your heart once or twice a day, if that, if you have a heart condition, maybe a little bit more often, if at all. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, the, the prepositions that mainly represent union with Christ, namely in and through and by, those prepositions occur multiple times in every paragraph, and in some cases multiple times in a single verse. But seriously, how often, how explicitly have you studied them? We tend to bypass words like by and through and with 
in favor of more exciting words like predestined and adoption and glory and saved. That's understandable. But here's the reality. We have no access to such realities apart from union with Christ, apart from the prepositions. It's the prepositions that pull the curtain on the truth that all of those glorious things are only accessible in Jesus. Here's how John Calvin put it. You see it in your notes. Calvin said, We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he's done and suffered for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. I have no doubt in my mind that that is Paul's burden in the letter to the Ephesians. That's why we're calling this series All Things in Him. It's four words we're borrowing from verse 10. To unite all things in Him. That's what Paul's driving at with this letter. Now it's going to take months to unpack those four words, all things in Him. So let's just take a step today. Today we're going to focus on the greeting. uh, Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. After that, I'd like to make just a simple observation about how to understand the entire letter in two steps, and then we'll close with a few applications about how union with Christ makes a major league impact in your life. So, first things first. Who wrote the letter to the Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. The author of this letter is not a mystery. It's a man, the Apostle Paul. Now, as with all scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is indeed breathed out by God. So Ephesians is the word of Paul, but it's also the word of God. It's an ancient document, yes, but it's not just any document. It's a letter given by inspiration of God. This letter is God speaking. It means it's authoritative, it's without error, and it's of shattering relevance for each of our lives. So Ephesians is the word of God through the word of Paul. Well, that covers who wrote it, but when was it written? We have a date. It's difficult to say with much precision, but assuming Paul's authorship, it places a date in the first century of probably the early 60s in this letter. Uh, toward the end of Paul's life, in other words, maybe A.D. 62. That's a, it's a rough estimate, but it's probably in the ballpark. We know that Paul was beheaded under the reign of the Roman emperor Nero, who himself died in A.D. 68, so we just compute backward from there. A little more can be said about the date, apart from the consideration of the letter's location. Let's talk about location for a moment. The geographic origins of this letter make a a significant impact on how we interpret it. You notice chapter 3, verse 1. Paul refers to himself as a prisoner for Christ. In chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says to the recipients of this letter, I am suffering for you. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, we see it again. He calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. 
And then in chapter 6, verse 20, he makes reference to himself as an ambassador in chains. What do we know about the geographic origins of this letter? Prison. Paul wrote it from a prison cell. Which prison cell? I don't know. That's where smart people disagree. Some think if Ephesus itself, the city of Ephesus. Others have suggested maybe Caesarea. For what it's worth, my guess is Rome. I don't think it matters much for our purposes. But the clear reference to prisoner and suffering and chains, the things that we can see here that are woven right into the fabric of this letter, they give this epistle a powerful urgency. I mean, when a, when a person unfolds the biblical doctrine of like sanctification, we should listen. When an inspired apostle does so from inside the walls of a prison cell, we should pay extra close attention. When a person teaches us the biblical view of marriage or parenting or church life or spiritual warfare, we should hear them out. But when an inspired apostle does so, shackled to a cement floor, awaiting his own beheading, we really ought to take note. Paul wrote these words from prison. Why did, or who did he write them to? Question of destination. It's also answered in verse 1. Let's take a look. Paul an apostle, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So there's your destination, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with the broader story of the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, you know something about Paul and Ephesus. He loved this church. He loved them so much. They were dear to him. He spent all kinds of time with the church in Ephesus. Uh, any question about his affection for these guys is put to rest in Acts chapter 20 as he's standing with them, with the elders of the church in Ephesus on the beach in Miletus. They are throwing their arms around each other and weeping with one another because they're saying goodbye. Didn't expect to see each other again. Paul simply adored this church. However, as we read this letter... One thing that we notice is that it's marked by a rather detached tone. For as well as he knew this people, the flavor of Ephesians is surprisingly impersonal, which has led the church over the years to wonder whether this letter was, yes, meant for them, but also meant for a rather broader audience. In the first century, Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey, Circular letters were very common. An excellent example of one of the circuits would be uh, the Revelation chapters 2 and 3, uh, where, at least in that case, each of the seven churches received its own letter. It's also true that it was common for letters to start in Ephesus and then get passed along to cities like Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and so on. That may account for why the phrase in Ephesus is actually missing from some of the earliest manuscripts in verse 1. This was probably a circular letter. It would have begun in Ephesus, but then it moved on, and thus being read by a much broader audience. 
that would account for its slightly less familiar feel. So the destination is quite expansive. Well, finally, how about the purpose of the letter? Why did Paul write Ephesians? Well, given its rather general audience, a circular letter perhaps, and the fact that he doesn't appear to be writing to critique like any particular doctrinal problems or behavioral issues per se, um, unlike most of his letters that are that way, the purpose of Ephesians, I think anyway, can probably be summed up pretty well in verse 2. I'm going to press this greeting into some very particular service. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the purpose of this letter? Why are we going to spend six months as a congregation walking through it paragraph by paragraph, phrase by phrase, word by word? What's the point? Here's the point. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's desire in this letter, as with other letters, is that grace and peace from God through Christ be mediated to his hearers. These two come together. They're a package deal. Christ's peace is not known apart from God's grace. And God's grace is not possible apart from Christ's peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So over the next six months, our eager expectation is that we will come to know the depth of God's grace and Christ's peace, perhaps as we never have before, through our union with Jesus Christ. And that brings us to an outline of Ephesians. Let me make a comment about the structure of this letter that's going to serve us well. It has helped me a lot over the years thinking about Ephesians. Ephesians cleaves neatly into two halves, two very simple halves. Indicatives in Christ, chapters 1 to 3. Imperatives in Christ, chapters 4 to 6. What does that mean? What's an indicative? Well, when we indicate something, we are pointing to and specifying the, the truth of a thing. The indicative mood is the mood of facts and reality. The indicative mood doesn't require anything of its listeners other than its ears, attention. The indicative mood doesn't command. Now, the language of command and order and challenge, that's the language of the imperative, namely the language of chapters 4 to 6. So, from Ephesians 1.1 to Ephesians 3.21, we will search in vain for a single command. Now, there is one, but it's very passive. It's the command to remember. You see it in chapter 2, verse 12? Remember who you were apart from Christ. That's a command, but it's a relatively passive one. Otherwise, there are nothing but indicatives in the first half of this letter. So, do you realize what this means? From today, Sunday, June 8th, through Sunday, August 31st, we are not going to encounter any apostolic commands. Apart from, remember, chapter 2, verse 12. 
For three months, the Apostle Paul isn't going to insist on anything except our listening ears. I don't know about you, but I can do that. I can do that. Now, beginning in September, starting with chapter 4, we're going to encounter a change in mood. From the indicative of chapters 1 to 3 to the imperative of chapters 4 to 6. It all begins with a therefore. It always begins with a therefore. In chapter 4, verse 1. And from that point, Paul will urge us to grow up. And put off our old self and put on the new self and be imitators of God and walk in love. And he will address us practically as husbands and wives and children and employers and employees and fathers. At the end of it all, he's going to call us to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. The imperatives are coming. But we have to see this. Every command, every single direction, all that we are called to become in chapters 4 to 6 is rooted in who we already are in Christ in chapters 1 to 3. Now that's wild. Here's the New Testament ethic. You ready? Become what you are. Only the Bible talks this way. Become what you are. That's how the gospel motivates. In Christ, you're clean. So cleanse yourself. Let me give us one example of this. I didn't plan to do it, but I I find myself so motivated by it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is motivating the church in Corinth to be holy. And he's using the example of sin as leaven in a lump of dough. Leaven's bad in this case. The dough is the good stuff. And he says, do you not know, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you already are unleavened. That's very strange. Cleanse out the old leaven. Why? You're unleavened. How are we unleavened? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So in Christ... You are clean, so cleanse yourself. In Christ, you're sanctified, so so be holy. In Christ, you are mature, so grow up. And yes, as we take this ethic on board, we take it on board with a full complement of new covenant promises. We talked about the new covenant this past couple of weeks. New covenant pardon in the cross. New covenant power and pleasure in the Holy Spirit and new covenant people in the church. We have resources at our disposal. The doctrine of union with Christ is spectacularly motivating as it relates to simple daily obedience. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, it says in your notes there, once said, 
if you knew who you are in Christ, you would not contemplate living in sin. If you know who you are in Christ, you would not contemplate living in sin. Well, who are we in Christ? Well, in the time that remains, allow me to just tantalize us with five truths by way of application, five images about our union with Jesus Christ. Those who came to the the Mound for You classes this past season are, are familiar with these, and I'm looking forward to sharing them through means of Ephesians as we close here. The story of the doctrine of union with Christ begins with our predicament in Adam. Our predicament in Adam. So, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of of mankind. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5 says, We were dead in our trespasses. Uh, chapter 4, verses 17 and following, talks about walking as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of of impurity. That is the predicament in Adam, and it's horrific. We'll, we are all born into it. We are born to trouble as sparks fly upward, as it says in the book of Job I read this week. That's our predicament in Adam. And we stand on judgment day to incur the wrath of a holy God, dead in our sins because of it. So what's the solution? The solution to our predicament in Adam is God's provision in Christ. So I want to acquaint us with five rooms as we land the plane this morning in relationship to union with Christ. In union with Christ, number one, we enter the divine delivery room. In union with Christ, we enter the divine delivery room. The fancy word for this is regeneration. Look at chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ, we enter the divine delivery room. Do you see that in verse 4? Made alive, verse 5 actually, made alive together with Christ. We are born again and we are so with Christ. Made alive together with Christ. You might call this the divine delivery room. How many of you are parents? Remember that moment your children were born? Okay, the beauty of that moment. You must enter the divine delivery room. But just like our love for our own children, God's love for us in Christ does not stop. Praise God, it doesn't stop in the divine delivery room. Point number two, in union with Christ, we enter the divine family room. 
the divine family room. Chapter 2, verse 19. We are called members of the household of God. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1. We are called beloved children. So in union with Christ, we enter the divine delivery room. But the fatherhood of God, the parenthood of God, the adoption of God kicks in when he whisks us away off that delivery table, straps us into the car seat, and brings us home to the couch, right? And he throws his arm around us, and he calls us son, or he calls us daughter. If you appreciate that privilege, it comes to you courtesy of union with Christ. Third, in union with Christ, we enter the divine courtroom. The divine courtroom. Chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Some folks get on this letter's case and wonder whether Paul wrote it or not because the word justification doesn't appear anywhere. Well, the reality of it appears right here. The same Paul that wrote Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 also wrote Galatians 2, 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The reality of justification is here. So think about it this way. You are born again in the divine delivery room. He brings you home, puts you on his lap in the family room. But you know that there is a, there is a legal demand called the law that stands against you. And you wonder sometimes whether you belong in that family room. Amen? You wonder if this is even okay. Well, he says, I'm, I'm going to put on the black robe. And we're going to head over to that, that room, that courtroom. And what we find in the courtroom is spectacular. The guilty record of any of us who are in Christ, we find has been transferred to Jesus, the guiltless and sinless one. And his perfect record of righteousness is transferred to us, declared righteous in Christ, only in union with Christ, apart from our works. So in union with Christ, we enter the divine courtroom. We are cleared before the bar of God's justice. Fourth, in union with Christ, we enter the divine weight room. I think I got this image from Dave Brickley. Weight room. Notice something about the nature of the first three rooms. Delivery room, family room, courtroom. They happen in an instant. They are something that you contribute nothing to. The weight room is quite different. I've had enough gym memberships to attest to this. You actually have to go. And you, you can sit around, but you actually have to press the weight in order to make progress. So in union with Christ, we enter the divine weight room. What's the weight room? It's sanctification. It's holiness. It's becoming in practice the way that God sees us through Jesus. And it is essential if we will be saved in the final day. God calls us to obedience, gospel obedience, So chapter 4, verse 17. You must no longer walk as Gentiles do 
in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirits of the spirit of your minds put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness listen to all these commands for us in Christ therefore having put away falsehood let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another be angry and do not sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave You, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is the weight room. And it's very different than the judicial uh, uh, exoneration that we get in the courtroom. It's different than him loving on us in the family room. It's different than being born. You are born again for good works. That's what chapter 2, verse 10 says. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Sanctification in union with Christ. We enter the divine weight room. Finally, there's one final step, and it's the perfection of all the others. And Ephesians talks about it too. In union with Christ, we enter the divine, anybody want to guess? Ballroom. Ballroom. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, those blessings are currently in the heavenly places. Now drop to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Can you imagine that one day your work in the weight room is going to be done? You're going to put down the weights. You're going to get cleaned up. You're going to have a wedding garment on. You're going to walk into this ballroom, purchased for you, By your union with Christ. Notice the the raising and seating occurs with him. Verse 6, with him. Seated with him in the heavenly places. So that in the ages to come, the ballroom is all ours. That's God's provision in Christ. The heartbeat of Ephesians is union with Christ. The most important doctrine, perhaps you've never studied. So... This summer, we're going to pay close attention to prepositions. 
Little words like in and by and with and through. Because it's only in Christ and by Christ and with Christ and through Christ that all the blessings of salvation become ours. Only in union with Christ do we enter these rooms. Each one of the rooms is courtesy of union with Jesus. Think about how Jesus gets us into each of these rooms. Regenerated in the delivery room because in Jesus is the life of God. That's why he can cause you to be born again. He's got life. Adopted and brought into the family room because Jesus is the son of God. He has a legitimate claim on giving us membership in the family. Justified through grace, uh, by grace through faith in the courtroom apart from works because Jesus is the righteousness of God and he offers us that. Sanctified in the weight room, yes, through our own sweat, but also through the power of the Holy Spirit because Christ is the holiness of God. And perfected as we step into the heavenly ballroom because Christ is the glory of God. Next week, we'll begin our three-week study of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Now, it's, it's all one sentence, as Paul wrote it. We only cope with it by breaking it up into five English sentences. Next Sunday, Guy will unfold for us the work of the Father in appointing us to redemption. In two weeks, Seth will show us the work of the Son in accomplishing redemption. And then, Lord willing, three weeks from today, it'll be my privilege to point to the work of the Spirit in applying redemption. To the saints who are in mound and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace this summer from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All things in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we marvel at your plan from before the foundations of this world to unite all things in your Son. And we want to know more of these realities. And we don't just want to know more for the sake of knowing more. Lord, the aim of our instruction is love. So grant that we, as we fill our minds with the truth of Scripture, grant that we would dine on and feast and treasure and enjoy these truths and be so filled to overflowing with what we are coming to delight in about union with Christ. The gospel tumbles out of our souls all summer long. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see Uh, the absolute priority of, of the indicatives in Christ, what you've already done, and then grant that we would be dead serious about, about obedience, about holiness in this church, by your grace, through your power, for your glory, all of the imperatives flowing from the great indicative of the gospel. Teach us more about our great Savior this summer, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.